0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Why don't we begin in prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your Holy Church. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God. And to you we give glory, together with your eternal Father, and your all holy, gracious, and life giving Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, Father Sebastian. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's continue our study of the sacraments of initiation
2: as it is titled here, The Blood and Water. The Blood and Water. We began uh, last week talking about this topic and discussed the reason for that wonderful title from John 1934. Tonight we're going to be talking about the Eucharist the eucharist the third sacrament of the three sacraments of initiation but first a little bit of quick review especially for those of you who have just joined us this week and as we go through this quickly if you feel like we're going through this information quickly this first part that probably indicates that you want to go back and review it from last week in more detail we spent two hours last week last last tuesday together and it was recorded so if you missed last week's recording or last week's lecture i strongly recommend if this is your your first time joining us tonight for this lecture you want to go back and watch that listen to that and that will make more sense out of what we're going to be doing the next few minutes and that is a very quick review of that subject to prepare ourselves to understand the Eucharist. You can't understand these three sacraments out of context. This is one point I hope that you've gotten clear from the Catechism how important it is, as the Catechism says, to understand these three sacraments in unity. In unity and something that was a uh, a little confusing for some, or surprising maybe, in the proper order as we saw with the catechism there more on that tonight so a quick review last week we talked about the sacraments of initiation in general the idea of sacrament in general right we began by talking about the sacrament a sacrament has both a material and immaterial aspect to it again we talked about these things in more detail last week this would make sense because we ourselves have a material and immaterial aspect, right? So it's very important to understand that and understand that this is the basics of our Christian theology, right? That we have a body, a soul, spirit, right? And so you expect a material and immaterial aspect to the sacraments. What are the sacraments of initiation? We talked about baptism and chrismation in detail last week, and then also touched on briefly, the Eucharist. We also talked about the order of the sacraments for converts. We talked about how most people today who are logged in, if they're born and raised in the United States and baptized as a, uh, as a baby, they were probably baptized sometime shortly after birth, and then they received their first communion sometime around age seven or so, and then they were confirmed somewhere between 12 to 15 in most dioceses. But I also pointed out to you that you probably have seen in, your, in whatever diocese you're in, in your own life experience, you've probably seen something different, and that is on the Easter vigil in every parish, typically. If it's a parish that's alive, you're going to have baptisms, right? You're going to have converts. And typically, if you're watching closely, you're going to notice – the priest baptizing, then chrismating or confirming, and then immediately after that, the whole congregation receives communion together. You can see that order. Anyone who is comes into the church as an adult, whether it's at the Easter Vigil or not, is going to typically experience those sacraments in that original order. And there's a lot of a lot of reasons for that, as we'll talk about tonight. Well, I also mentioned to you that some of you who are from South America or Central America, if you, know, if you have a friend who was born and raised in Mexico as a Catholic or even in the Philippines or in Brazil, or they would have been baptized as a baby, confirmed sometime in their infancy, in their maybe first year or two, whenever the bishop showed up at the church, and then they would have received communion around age seven. And so it's also to help take our American blinders off, right? We often have an idea that everything happens in the world according to our worldview, right? So uh, sometimes I like to remind people, that you know, the Bible, you know, people, we have a debate. about so what Bible should you read? Well, I like the RSV. Oh, I like the old Dewey Reeves. Some, uh, a Protestant I say, no, the King James is the right one. The majority of Christians in the world would have no idea what we're even talking about. Right? We're talking about... English translations, Roman Catholics in Rome, you know, the real ones, right? In Rome, Roman Catholics speak in Italian, wouldn't know anything about a King James or a Dewey Rooms or a New American Bible or RSV. They have their own translations. Okay, So I'm going to take those American blinders off and realize that what we may have experienced in our own little parish or even our country, our nation, in our own generation, is not necessarily what is going on out there elsewhere in the Catholic world. And then we talked about baptism, and I had a little word game for you. Remember that? I asked you to come up with three words, you know, quickly to describe that. We'll talk more about that in a second. We also talked about the word that seemed to be missing from that word game. That was the resurrection, right? Resurrection, new life. And I wanted to talk to you about that because the scriptures and the catechism emphasize this image of The sacraments of initiation, most importantly, baptism, starting with, as we talked about last week, as a new creation, right? As a new creation. We talked about how the New Testament authors record Jesus' commands to baptize, Jesus' teaching on baptism. We saw how the, the scriptures go on in the epistles and elsewhere in the Acts of the Apostles. We see how important baptism is as the entrance into the church, Again, we spent a whole hour on that last last week, so we don't have time to re- review all of that. But I want you to remember, most importantly, this idea, this theme that the catechism really emphasized on baptism, this idea of the new birth in water and the Spirit, a new creation, a death and resurrection in a newness of life. We talked about how chrismation was the gift of the Spirit and how you can see in this paradigm you can see the image of creation all over again in the new creation now as adam was brought forth from the murky waters the murky waters i heard you talking about early of the early of the first creation so in baptism we're brought forth from the waters of the baptismal font this is why that full immersion image was so important for the early church and why the catechism talks about that as an ideal way to baptize because of the categorical catech- imagery. And then how Adam, once he was brought forth from those murky waters, and we're talking about Genesis chapter 2 there, then God breathed, in verse 7, into his nostrils the breath of life, right? And so the church would then give the gift of the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands, immediately after baptism, and then how also in the early, early church, we had documentation all the way up to the 2nd century that very early the church began using olive oil in the laying on of hands and this gives us one of those early names for this for the sacrament chrismation anointing anointing right and then we also talked about how that the reason for that because in the old testament the anointed one the messiah right had oil poured on him and the and it was the sign of the gift of the holy spirit and so this is important for us as well as christ's as members of the body of christ right Well, there's more to that paradigm that we didn't get to. I held off on that a bit. What happened to Adam next in the story? Well, the very next episode is all about life and death and what you're going to eat and what you're not going to eat, right? If you go and look at Genesis chapter 2 and 3 very carefully, you're going to see that the whole theme there, especially chapter three, is all about food. If I asked you, what was the fall all about? What happened in the fall? Uh, Theologians might wax eloquently for hours and hours about all sorts of things, but we'll typically miss the main theme, the at you as you read the story. It's all about life, death, and what you're gonna eat. Right, there's the tree of life that gives you life, and there's the tree of knowledge, which if you eat of it, you will die. And so, all the way back in the beginning of salvation history, we see this image of food as central to the theme of life or death and salvation history. Danielu, Jean Danielu, that my brother was mentioning earlier in the introduction, those of you who logged in early heard this, wrote in another one of his uh, books how to forget about Genesis, chapters 1, 2, and 3 is to eventually lead to a loss of faith altogether. If you don't understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, especially chapter 3, says eventually you will not understand the faith, and therefore you will eventually forget the faith. It's so important to understand what's going on there in those first few chapters of creation, the creation story, to understand the rest of salvation history. We left Eden, and salvation history is about getting us back there. If you read the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, the last three chapters of the Bible, you're going to see it's all about returning to the Garden of Eden. God coming to dwell with man again. The restoration of all things. But I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. So very important to understand that Edenic paradigm, that Edenic paradigm for salvation history that my brother has emphasized so many times in other lectures for the Institute, and I've talked about with you as well. But now, I would like, enough of our review, I would like to talk about the topic of the Eucharist, the topic of the Eucharist. And we're going to play a little word game tonight, all right? So get your, your keyboards ready or pieces of paper and a pen. I want you to write down, or if you like, some of you are, have it easy, you can type it in the chat box. Uh, write down on a piece of paper, if you like, or under the chat box, three words. That's all you can write. Three words. I not you give me three words about the Eucharist. Uh, a Baptist walks up and asks you, explain the Eucharist. And you've got it. You have three words. All you can utter is three words. Okay? And from those three words, you're going to build the rest of your conversation with them. Okay, it's your keyword outline. All right, three words. Ready, go. Don't we have a Jeopardy sound or something we can bring in here? All right, ready? All right, time's up. I didn't have time, you had plenty of time. At least a minute there. All right, and uh, let's see. Ernest, Ernest, can you turn your mic on? Ernest, can you give me what your three words were?
3: Yes, I put uh, Jesus, real presence, absolute.
2: Jesus, real presence, and absolute? Yes, right, sir. Nice. Good. Beautiful. Beautiful. Carol, what, uh, what, what three words did you write down for us?
0: I put body, blood, and Jesus. Body,
2: blood, blood and Jesus. Jesus. Excellent. Excellent. Beautiful. Very, very good. Jane. Jane Howley. What, is, what three words did you give us?
3: Um, I did body, blood, and life because I see Jesus as life. Good.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Body, blood, and life. Very good. Very good. Macrina. Macrina, can you turn on your mic? Are you able to to give us your three words? Are you there?
1: Uh, Death, uh, crucifixion.
2: Okay, good. Death, crucifixion. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. Death, crucifixion. You're thinking, she's thinking of the Last Supper narrative and the end of the the gospel story there. Excellent. Excellent. And I'm seeing on the the chat box here. Let's see here. I see body, blood. Jesus. Oh, that's Carol had typed that in. David typed in body, blood, and thanksgiving. Really nice. Jesus, real presence. Body, blood, life. Okay, very nice. Passover, resurrection, transubstantiation. Excellent. Okay, so now, two of you were on it. Now, those were all excellent answers, all right? Those are excellent answers, and they are all very important themes and ideas. We're going to touch on all those tonight, okay? But I want you to understand the central theme first, the central theme. Jane mentioned life. She mentioned life. And I want to talk about what kind of life are we talking about here? What kind of life? When we talk about eternal life, what do we mean by that? A lot of times we're talking about floating around in the clouds, you know, bright light environment for all eternity, playing a harp or something. That's not Christian salvation, okay? That's a a dualistic understanding of salvation. You find the New Age movement too. But when we're talking about eternal life, life in Jesus – We're not talking about just an immaterial, spiritual eternal life. We're talking about a physical, a physical eternal life. Really critical to grasp. And I see RJ and Lauren, uh, they they typed in there, Passover, resurrection, and transubstantiation. Again, all three very important uh, words there. Resurrection being the most important, as we're going to see. So I want you to make a note of that for yourself. When we're talking about the sacraments of initiation, if the church wants us to understand all three of these together, and the main themes we're going to see as we look at all these, is, uh, these sacraments is life. Then we wanna ask ourselves, what kinds of life are we talking about? And what we're talking about is a resurrection, not only a spiritual resurrection that we receive in these sacraments, but a physical resurrection which these sacraments give us, all right? Now, you might say, I've never thought about the Eucharist and resurrection before. I've never seen that connection. That's not a surprise. This is, a lot of people don't think of it this way, but you're going to see, this is what Jesus taught about, this, about the Eucharist. This is what the catechism teaches. And as my brother was talking to you about this, this is so important to constantly be refreshing, renewing, making sure we're well-grounded in our faith in what the, what the apostles taught, what they tell us, what Jesus taught, what the apostles then wrote in their epistles, and what the early fathers and those who studied the apostles, what did they teach? Because we are one holy Catholic and apostolic. A lot of times when people think of apostolic, they think of, well, that means apostolic succession. Well, that's part of it, yeah. Because the apostolic succession, what does it give us? It gives us the sacraments, right? So this is united and connected, but you can't understand the sacraments simply by the sacraments themselves, or you have to have some understanding, explanation of them. So when we're talking about apostolic, we're also talking about apostolic teaching. Apostolic teaching. What did the fathers of the church teach? What did Ignatius of Antioch talk about the Eucharist? What did, what did Justin Martyr say about the Eucharist? Right? Very important. We're saying, oh, we're an apostolic church. It's more than simply, you know, bishops ordaining other priests and, and other bishops and things like that throughout the centuries. It's something more, more than that. Why does that happen? Why is it important? What does it mean to be apostolic, to be anchored, rooted in the, in the faith? Okay, so let's start then with the name, Eucharist. This is the most common name for this sacrament. Someone might say communion, and all, again, they're all great titles and things. The Eucharist is one of the most common. The Eucharist. This is a Greek word, or it's an English word that comes from the Greek. All right? You Eucharist. You hear that? You Eucharist. Ev, in Greek, the, the U is a, a V sound, like evangelist, right? There's that U that's a, a V sound there. Evangelist, good news, right? The evangelion, the good news, the gospel, the, the evangelist, the one who spreads the good news. Ev, Ev, good, good. Okay? So, Ev, Evcharistin. That's an infinitive ending there, the in, so you can forget about that for now, to do something. What are talking about haris, charis, grace, gift. To give something which is good, a good gift, right? Good gift. Now, what is it? What do do we mean? Why do we use this word? The reason why we use this word is it doesn't mean good gift in the sense in English, the way I just literally word for word translate, but rather it means thanksgiving, To give thanks, the thanks is the good part here, and the giving is the the chadis part, okay? So thanksgiving, thanksgiving, to thank somebody, right? To give thanks to somebody, to give over appreciation for, for something, thanksgiving, okay? So thanksgiving is the English translation of Eucharist, thanksgiving. Now, why do we use that word for this sacrament? Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Now, the Eucharistic words, or the story of the Passover meal of Jesus with his disciples, or as it's often called the Last Supper, is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John refers to the Supper But he doesn't talk about the actual food part, the meal and the prayers. John talks about something else, and talks about the washing of the feet. We'll get to that in a second. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we hear about the words of institution, as it's often called, where Jesus talks about, This is my body, this is my blood. It's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we're going to look at together. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Passover meal at the end, we hear about Jesus. Saying, This is my body, and this is my blood. There's those words, the words of institution. And then you also hear those same words and the same story in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul talks about the Eucharist there and the, and the Passover meal of the, of the Christians in Corinth. Okay, so, but tonight we're going to look at Luke chapter 22 because he uses some words here that help make this point that we're talking about. Luke chapter 22, this is in the midst of the Last Supper. Verse 19, so this is at the Passover meal, okay? This is, you can actually go up to verse 7 to get the context here. Uh, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, so Jesus sent Peter and John. So this is on the the day of Passover, the evening of the Passover. Verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. So look at this. Gave thanks. He gave thanks, right? After he had given thanks. There's that verb, epharistim. After he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus does this and then says do this as a memorial, as a remembrance. Then it says, and likewise the cup after supper, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Okay? So, again, if you want to look, go look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see similar language there in 1 Corinthians 11. Just a, a quick note, you might say, well, which one do we use at the Mass? None of them. Why not? Because the words and the prayers in the liturgy of the apostolic churches predates the composition of the Gospels, right? It's, these Gospels were being written down for this text to be read in the midst of a Eucharistic meal that had already been going on for decades. So now, in Luke chapter 22, we hear that idea of giving thanks. He gave thanks. We're going to see that come up again in another context. So notice that Jesus revealed the Eucharist in the context of a Passover meal. Something you'll often hear here at the ICC is the idea of context, context, context. You want to understand some church teaching or a a council or a declaration? You've got to go back to context. What was going on historically at that time in that region? What was happening? Right? So, for example, the Council of Trent, the Declarations Council of Trent, if you don't understand the Reformation and what Luther and Calvin were asking and in Zwingli, then you're not going to really understand those documents and what they're saying and why they're saying it, the way they're saying it. Okay? So the same goes with New Testament, Scripture, any, any, any piece of literature, as I've mentioned to you many times in other lectures, right? If you want to understand Gone with the Wind or you got to understand who Steinbeck was and who, his intended audience. If you want to understand uh, Grapes of Wrath or, or the Trilogy of the Ring or the Chronicles of Narnia, you've got to understand what was going on in England at that time. And what was, what was Tolkien or, or CSS, what were they trying to do for that audience? All right, so context, context, context. Jesus reveals the Eucharist in the context of a Passover meal of a Passover meal, which is very important for us then, huh? Jesus could have done this in the midst of any other context. He he chose to reveal the Eucharist to the disciples in the context of a Passover meal. So what is the bigger picture? What what are some basic themes we can see here? Well, what's the Passover about? What's going to happen? Jesus is going to die and rise from the dead, right? Jesus is going to die and rise from the dead, and he talks about how what they're going to do, this Eucharistic meal, is related to that. Now, why does he say that? The, the meal is going to be a remembrance of an event that hasn't yet taken place? What? What? shouldn't he have done this with them after the resurrection? Wouldn't that have made more sense to, after the resurrection from the dead, then he could have had a meal with them, which would surely have been their last supper for sure, really last then, right? And then, then he could have revealed them the Eucharist and said, do this as a remembrance of what happened back there at the death and resurrection. Why do he do it that way? Well, that would be uh, imposing upon the text our understanding, right? But let's let the text direct our understanding This is a Passover meal. Now, when was the first Passover? If we're going to understand the first Passover of the new covenant, we've got to understand the first Passover of the old covenant, right? We'll get to that in a second. So if we want to understand what's going on here, what it means is we've got to go back and review Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover. So that's the the general big picture there. Death and resurrection connected to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus But why this order? Well, we're going to understand more of all of that when we look at Exodus chapter uh, 12. Now, let's look at the particular context, though. That was the big picture context. What about the particular context? Let's look at this story here. Jesus in the midst of a Passover meal. Now, anybody who knows about the Passover of the Old Testament knows that there's a central, central character there, isn't there? It's the Passover lamb, right? You can't have the Passover meal without the Passover lamb. Where is the Passover lamb in this story? Well, you heard his voice already, right? He said, this is my body. This is my blood. It's the, this is obvious that Jesus is identifying himself as the Passover lamb. He's wanting us to understand him as the Passover lamb in the midst of a Passover meal. Why is that? Well, we're going to go back and look at that. Understand that why he does this. John does this too. By the way, remember, remember, he records the words of John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right at the at the Passover, at the very end, Jesus is brought out to be crucified. At the moment when they started sacrificing the lambs in the temple, and he died at the very moment when they would have finished sacrificing the lambs in the temple. So the Passover imagery is very rich in John's Gospel, too. We're going to get to a little bit of that tonight. All right, so the large, the bigger picture, Passover theme. Jesus' death and resurrection. And Jesus tells us this is, what he's doing here is connected to that. We're going to see Paul also make that same connection to Jesus' death and resurrection. So right off the bat, when we talk about the Eucharist, we should immediately be thinking, this has something to do with death and resurrection, right? Now, when we look at the particular context, as I mentioned, you can see that Jesus identifies himself here as the Passover lamb. Why does he do that? Again, we're going to go back and look at that, that context in the Exodus. And then before we leave this spot here, I just want, to note, want you to note one other major theme screams at us. Jesus is offering up bread and wine. Do you remember anybody in salvation history that might be related to this topic, right? The epistle to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the new Melchizedek, right? Why why does the epistle Hebrews say that? The epistle of Hebrews is written for people who understood the Old Testament context, Jewish converts to Christianity, and so he, the Epistle of Hebrews is very rich in Old Testament imagery, and one of the main themes are over and over, here are quotes of Psalm 110, he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, why does he keep saying that? Because he offers up the bread and wine. Now, why is that important? It's really neat, he offered bread and wine, Melchizedek did that, so he's kind of like the new Melchizedek, neat, well there's a lot more than that going on. Who's Melchizedek? What was he doing in the Abrahamic narrative? And why did he offer bread and wine? What did he do in that story? Very important. We're going to go back and look at that right now. So turn back quickly to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Remember, God called Abraham from among the nations so that through his seed, his descendants, all the nations could be blessed. Remember that, Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 14, all the promises of blessings that Abraham was given, all those promises of coming blessings, the beginning of that whole process and of those blessings being bound in a covenant, in this tripart covenantal structure that we're going to see in the next few chapters of Genesis, chapters 15, 17, and 22, begin, they're kicked off by, the blessing of Melchizedek upon Abraham. This is not just some random story that pops into the Abraham narrative. This is part a critical part of the whole story. Back in chapter 12, God said, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless all the nations through your seed. When will he bless him? When will he bless him? It's right here in the Melchizedek narrative. It says in chapter 14, chapter 14, verse 17, you know the story, Abraham just came back from a battle. In verse 18, Melchizedek, that is king of righteousness, righteous king, king of Salem, king of peace. Now what's Salem? Salem is Jerusalem. You can go back and look at Psalm 76. Salem, Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed him. So Abraham now is blessed in fulfillment of what God promised he would do. He blessed Abraham through Melchizedek. He says, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So the blessing from God upon Abraham that is eventually going to come to the descendants of Abraham and then eventually through his descendants to all the nations happens from Melchizedek at the moment when he offered up bread and wine. Jesus is the new Melchizedek. He is the priest of God Most High. He is the king of Jerusalem, the Christ, the anointed one. We've talked about that in other studies. This is why it's important to understand what it means to say Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed king of Jerusalem, the line of David. And if he's the king of Jerusalem, and he's going to be the one through whom God is going to bless Abraham and his descendants, and then through all the nations, you'd expect him to do it, in a context that explains that imagery or reminds us that imagery. Okay. More on that in another study and more on that briefly at the end of our talk tonight. Now I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. This is the Passover story. This is the first Passover of the first covenant, right, of the old covenant. Chapter 12, context. Remember the people of Israel are in in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. It's time to get them out, not to give them political freedom, liberation theology, that kind of nonsense you might hear out of a Zionist film out of of Hollywood called The Ten Commandments, but rather, rather, as as the book tells us over and over, as the Psalms say, God brought judgments upon the gods of Egypt. The purpose of bringing them out of Egypt was to get Egypt out of their heart, right to get Egypt out of them to return them to the, to the worship of the one true God who had revealed himself to Abraham, so that the seed of Abraham that is Israel could be the one through whom the one true God would bless all the nations eventually, return them to the people of God, to the kingdom of God, to the family of God. So at the end of cha- chapter twelve is the, is the tenth plague. God has given these plagues, plague after plague. Until finally Egypt, at the 10th plague, is going to let Israel go. And in chapter 12, we hear the story. The Lord said to Moses, Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month they shall take every man a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household, verse 4. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then a man and his neighbor next to him. And may take it for the sheep or the goats. Okay, it could be either one. Verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs in the evening. So they're going to look at the lamb for three days. They're going to examine it and make sure it's without blemish. This is why Jesus was kept in captivity for three days. John, John emphasized this in his gospel. And so it says then in verse 6, And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs in the evening. So a congregation of Israel, by the way, this is congregation in the Greek text. This is the ecclesia, the church, right? The the people of God, the gathered people. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts. So why are they going to kill the lamb? Well, the first thing is they need its blood. Well. What are they going to do with the blood? You're going to put it on the doorpost on the lentil? This is the door frame, right the two posts and the crossbeam. okay houses back then sometimes you might have a, a door, you might have a curtain or something like that, but the doorway was the door for them. We think of a door as the the hard thing with the knob on it for them it was the the passageway, the doorway right Jesus uh, talks himself as the the way right the way of life, right? the way to the father all right so they're going to put the blood on the doorpost on the lintel here. Why is that? Well, we we'll see what happens next. It says they're going to eat unleavened bread also on that night. And then when they eat, the, then they're going to eat the lamb. But look what it says. When they eat the lamb, look what it says in verse 11. In this manner, you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and staff in your hand. You're ready to go. So you can see the 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 food of the, the flesh of the lamb is related to the exit from the place. There's two things the lamb's giving. The lamb is going to give its blood and its meat, its flesh. The blood, as we're going to see here now, is going to keep them from death. Look what it says in verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, but the, the man and beast, and upon all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. There's that monotheism versus polytheism theme. Verse 13, the blood shall be assigned for you upon the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over, pass over your house. i will smite the Egyptians, but you shall live. Okay, so the passover. there's that word where we get it, pasach in the Hebrew or pascha in the Aramaic. Pascha, Passover. Paschal, you heard the paschal lamb. In English, we typically call the great feast of the year in English, most people call it Easter, which is okay. It's got some interesting English history to it. That's uh, for another discussion. But Passover is the official name of the of the feast uh, in the church. This we would, would do very well catechetically. We'd start using that in English. I can't know how many Christians do Christians celebrate Passover? Oh no, the Jews do that. We don't do that stuff. What? Right? Oh, my Jewish friend invited me for Passover, so I went. Did you invite him for Passover? What do you mean? No problem, right? How important it is to make sure we use our words properly in accordance with the tradition of the church. Be very careful with our English translations. Okay, so Passover. The blood is going to keep the angel of death outside the house. The angel of death is going to pass through Egypt, kill the Egyptians, but the those within the house will be kept alive by the blood of the Lamb. It's going to be a barrier of life. Why is this? What's the blood? Why blood? I mean, could why wouldn't you use something else? Maybe the saliva of the lamb. I don't know. The, what's the meaning? Well, blood was the image of life in the ancient world. I don't want to disgust any, but if you've ever seen an animal butchered in the ancient way of doing it, in ancient kosher slaughter, it's not what they do today in kosher slaughter, but ancient kosher slaughter was simply this. They would take a very sharp knife and cut the carotid and jugular. Okay? The carotid artery and the jugular vein on both sides slit little paper cut. The animal didn't feel it. And the animal continues to chew the cud. We're breathing. Sitting there. You try not to cut the trachea. So they sit there breathing. And I, I've done a number of slaughters like this myself. And, and they just sit there. They have no idea what's going on. All of a sudden, you see them start to kind of sway back and forth. Then all of a sudden, bloop, they fall. they faint because of a lack of blood pressure. Okay? And then all the blood keeps pumping out. Until finally, they go brain dead. They faint. They fall asleep. And then eventually they die in their sleep. It's the most humane way of slaughter. It's very rarely done today. Even in a kosher slaughterhouse, they don't do this. But, but that's the old way of doing it. The, so in the ancient world, when they saw this blood come out, they saw the blood was like liquid life. And so they often associate the blood with the life. And this is why God tells the Israelites, don't touch blood, don't get near it, don't drink it, don't do anything with it, right? Because the pagans would do all sorts of weird stuff with it. They would drink it, they would bathe in it, right? That's that idea, the connection to blood and the life. And so, and there was obviously a connection there, right? There is obviously some sort of a connection. Once enough blood pumps out of the body, then... The person dies, the animal dies. And so they took the blood. God tells them, you want, I want you to take that blood, and you're going to take the blood from the lamb, you're going to put it on the doorpost and the lentil, and that will keep the angel of death out, right? The death will stay on the outside of the house. The blood is a barrier of life, keeping death out and life on the inside. So it's the blood which saves them from initial death, all right? But that's not all. Then they have to eat the flesh of the lamb, right? Because they've got a journey ahead of them. The purpose of the Passover was not simply to keep them alive, but rather to get them alive out of Egypt, and not simply out of Egypt, but to get them somewhere, right? To Mount Sinai, and eventually to the Promised Land. Have you ever tried making a long journey on salad? There's a great bumper sticker here I see in California, usually on big farm trucks. Eat beef. The West was not one on salad. Usually, I'm sure, a a rancher. Uh, So it's true. I mean, try eating a salad and go run a marathon. You just can't do it. You're going to need some sustenance, right? So they are given bread and meat to sustain them for this journey ahead. Not just bread, but also meat. And that's going to sustain them for the journey. And you can see the connection of the bread and the meat, the food part of it is connected with the staff and the loins girded. That's for the journey part. Otherwise, they'll just use the blood. They would stay there in Egypt, and then they would certainly eventually die of starvation, right? They wouldn't get anywhere. They got to have the food. So the the food, the the blood, and the flesh of the lamb were life-giving. But also interesting, look at that flesh. They ate it with bread. Isn't that interesting? We're going to see that theme again later on. All right, so then what happens? It says, also in the regulations, this is chapter 12, verse 14, he says, this is the, the memorial day for you. It's a memorial day. You got to do this. Once a year, you're going to do this. But it was also the first night of a seven-day feast called unleavened bread. So Passover is the first night of a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Why is it unleavened? Because God doesn't like yeast. No. And some of you will think, well, the Jews really don't like yeast. No, Jews love yeast, okay? Have you ever eaten bread without yeast? It doesn't have a lot of flavor. What gives it that bready taste, right? So the yeast was is not used during Passover for that week. Why? Because when you're sitting there eating unleavened bread, a rush. Think, why isn't there yeast in this? Right now, why didn't they put yeast in their bread for a whole week every year? To remind them of how fast they got kicked out of Egypt. Before the ladies could get it, even let their bread rise, it says. The women had to take the dough before it was raised in the, in the warmth of the morning, wrapped up in their mantle and run with it. And then they baked it along the way as unleavened. So this is a memorial every year, not only that God saved them from death and gave them life as he brought them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai where he was waiting for them, right? But also how quickly it all happened. How quickly it all happened. Okay? And now also notice, it says this in verse 24. You shall observe this rite as an ordinance for you and for your sons forever. This is some sort of thing they're going to have to do over and over again. And it says, verse 25, and when you come to the land, which the Lord your God will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And then look, so notice it's connected with the promised land of they're, where they're going. And then look at verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why are we doing this, Dad? Why are we killing this lamb differently than the way we kill other lambs each year? Right? They eat lamb. This is part of their—they they want meat. They don't go to Safeway or the grocery store or Costco. They go out and they grab a lamb, right? They butcher it and eat it. This particular one had to be looked at for three days, made sure it was without blemish, and it was very sacred meal. Dad, why are we doing this? So when your kid gets old enough to ask those questions, what do you do? You explain to them why. And by the way, as part of our theme tonight, those kids were eating that Passover meal is from the beginning. Right? It's only when they came to the age of reason and they began to ask the question of what it meant that you then explained it to them. It wasn't that was the moment and you suddenly explained it, then, you, then they were able to participate in the Passover meal. More on that in our second half. Okay, so then, look also, verse 26, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say to them, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. The Passover. It's a sacrifice. Okay? What does that mean? It's a sacrifice. What is Jesus trying to say then by giving us the Eucharist in the context of the Passover meal? He's trying to show us that his death and resurrection as the Passover lamb is going to be giving us death, and resurrection. It's going to give us the opportunity to pass from death to life. We are going to be like the Egyptians or the Israelites in Egypt who are preserved from death by his blood and given life by his flesh. Somehow it's giving us life and preserving us from death. Something there he's trying to show us. And then also notice the theme of the sacrifice what is sacrifice in the Bible? Sacrifice is not something you do to change God, to make him happy. Right? That's a pagan understanding of sacrifice. If you're offering a sacrifice to make God smile, then you're dealing with a pagan God, a pagan concept. Right? Sacrifice doesn't change God. It changes the sacrificer, the one who gives the thing. So sacrifice is to hey, – We often sometimes we use sacrifice in the proper sense in English. I'll, 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 I'll sacrifice this now – Uh, so that you can do that, right? I'll I'll give up this so that you can have that, right? That's what sacrifice is all about. Giving up something that you have or that you want or you, you feel you need, giving it up so that somebody else can have something that they really need. And so Jesus is trying to show us the Passover lamb, which gave its life, it gave its blood, it gave its life and even its flesh so that Israel might live. So Jesus is showing us that through his death and resurrection, he's giving himself to us so that we might live. Okay, so that's the the basic Passover imagery there. Also notice the order. In the narrative, the Passover hasn't happened yet. This is all the instructions for the Passover. It's not until you get to verse 28 and then 29 that you move on to the next narrative where the Passover in verse 29 and following is going to actually happen. So the instructions and the meal of the Passover were given before the actual event of Passover took place, so they'd be ready for it before the angel came, right? And then after that, every year, they will celebrate the Passover as a memorial of the event. So then the ordinance was given, the institution of the Passover was given before the event, and then after the event, it looks back to the event. So that the, the institution looks toward the event, the, the memorial looks back to the event. See how that works? And this is why Jesus does these things, the order in which he does them. He prepares the disciples for what they're about to experience. He gives them the Passover meal of the new covenant and the ordinances and the directions of to do this and do it in remembrance, of, just like you saw here, before the actual event takes place. And also instructs them so that afterwards they will continue to do As We'll see they did. Okay, so that is the image of the, uh, or the, the main themes here of the Passover. Notice the theme of flesh and blood and the life-giving aspect of the theme of Passover, as we talked about. And then also notice the bread is also there in the story. The bread's also there in the story. Today, modern Jews, when they celebrate the Passover, they don't, don't even use a the lamb. They can't because they don't have the temple. Well, it was the unleavened bread. So So it is an important part of it that people don't usually notice. All right, now, how else can we understand the Eucharist? This is a place where Jesus explained, revealed the Eucharist to us. But he also did this in another context. If I asked about the Eucharist for you to talk to me about the Eucharist, where in the New Testament we hear about the Eucharist, many people would talk about the Last Supper. But I think most of you know enough, and certainly have uh, had enough ICC events to know about the importance of John chapter 6. So, before we go to John chapter 6, I want to turn with you now to the events that John chapter 6 point back to, all right? So, we're right here in the context of the Exodus. After they left Egypt, as you know, they crossed the Red Sea, right? We talked about this in the water and in the sea. Remember Paul talking about that? They crossed. And what did Paul talk about immediately after that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, you were, Our ancestors were all under the cloud. They were baptized to Moses in the water and in the sea, or in, the, in the cloud and in the sea. And then he says, And they ate and drank of the supernatural food. Notice Paul immediately connects the miraculous gift of food and water uh, after the cross in the Red Sea. This is, of course, what we need to look at as well to understand this. So look, look here in Exodus chapter 15, 14 and 15, you hear about the crossing of the sea. And then in chapter 16, you hear about the manna story, the manna. Now, why we want to talk about this? Because you know in John chapter 6, this is one of the themes you're going to hear. You're going to hear about the manna. Your fathers ate the bread in the wilderness, the manna in the wilderness, and they died. What I will give you will give you life. There's a theme there, death and life, right? So look what it says here in chapter 16. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to summarize and have you look at a few verses. They're hungry. When they came out of their, out of their baptism into Moses, after they'd been baptized and chrismated, right, after the and the Spirit was hovering over them, as Paul says, now it was time to eat. They're hungry. And so they asked for food. And look what they asked for. Look at verse 3. They asked for they're, they're yearning for meat and bread. They say, oh, we wish we were back in Egypt when we had meat and bread back then, our flesh pots and our bread to the full, right? They're hungry. They don't want salad. They want, they're hungry. They're on a journey. They need food. And so verse 4 and following, we hear that God's going to give them a miraculous gift of meat, flesh, and bread from heaven. Look what it says. Verse 8. When the Lord gives you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. Notice together, flesh and bread again. Again, then Moses explains to the people, verse 12, I have heard the Moses people of Israel. They say, at twilight you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall eat bread. Then, in verse 13, in the evening quails came up and covered the camp. In the morning dew lay round about. So you have the flesh and the bread is given together in the story. Many people would take out the manna story, they forget about the quail. And this is why we see in John chapter 6, Jesus talking about the flesh and the bread, the flesh and the bread. We'll see more of that after the break. But before we come to our break, I want you to notice two more elements here. Look at chapter 16. In chapter 16, it says when the when the manna fell from the sky. So both these are heavenly gifts, right? They come from the sky. When the manna falls to the ground, it's like frost on the ground in the morning. And they go out and they see it's like flaky stuff on the ground, like cornflakes. So they go and they pick it up. And they said, look at verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? They, they know it quail. They've had quail. But what is this? Highlight that. What is it in Hebrew? That's man who what it. What is it man who in the Aramaic that comes out as mana, mana, manna. Okay. What is it? So the word manna means basically what is it what is it especially as it comes back from the hebrew there manhu what is it it's a mystery they don't know they understand it even today people scientists wonder oh it might be this it might be they have no idea they have no idea okay it's a mystery a miracle some some maybe some uh, miracle having some origin in nature we don't know like the quail uh, quail right there were quail flying around back then but to have quail and this quantity dumped out of the sky right flying over then suddenly drop into the camp that's the hand of god okay the same thing here whatever this was may have had some natural uh, you know environmental background there but it was in such massive quantities that they could just walk out and gather it up and didn't know what it was okay so god fed them with the manna and the quail with the bread and the flesh together and the people gathered it But if they tried to save it overwards, it would just become mealy. It wouldn't wouldn't last. But God told them to keep some in a jar. Moses was to gather some, put it in a jar, and keep it as a memorial. And this actually was preserved, it says, as a memorial of what God had done for them. So, again, in the manna, you get this idea that it's somehow supposed to be something to remind them how God saved them. And what did he save them from? Hunger? Well, this is not just simply hunger pains at, at lunch, okay? You have millions of people out in the wilderness, and they're in the desert of clay, it says. The desert of clay, there's nothing out there. Millions of people, men, women, children, elderly, babies, flocks and flocks, but all, how are you going to feed these people? How are you going to feed them? And so God gives them a daily supply of meat and bread, meat and bread, this miraculous gift from the sky, from the heavens, right and this is how god saved them from death so the manna story or the manna quail story is a death life and death story again the people would have died without food just like the next story without water they would have died as well very quickly right so it's life and death life and death god gives them life here he preserves them alive sustains their life and so we can see how jesus looks back to the story as a way for us to understand then what he's giving us in the Eucharist. And this is a good point that I think to take our break. All right, so we were looking at Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Again, we could spend hours here looking at this. This is so rich, but we don't have that much time left. So we're going to speed up here and jump back now to the New Testament, and look at the context in which Jesus explained the Eucharist earlier in his ministry before the Passover, before the Passover. So that's recorded in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. A little bit of that context again. If you look at chapter 6, it says in verse 4 that this was, The feast of the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now, you should know that John tells us about three Passovers during the earthly ministry of Jesus. This is where you have maybe heard that Jesus' ministry was about three years. Well, that comes from our reading of John's gospel that tells us about three different Passovers occurring during his ministry. And the first one was at the wedding at Cana. We don't have time to go back and look at that, but if you read John chapter 2, you'll hear about the Passover there. It's in the midst of the Passover, the first Passover of his earthly ministry, that he multiplies wine. And then in the uh, second Passover, he's going to multiply bread. You see the bread and wine coming in here. And those two things he's doing, of course, at these two Passovers, you would expect, are going to point to something going on at the third Passover. Right? So sometimes people will say, well, John doesn't mention the bread and wine like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do at the last Supper. Yeah, that's right. He already spent two chapters on it, right? He's talked about the wedding at Cana, the miracle there where Jesus multiplied wine, right? and now at the next Passover, he multiplies bread, and he even uses the word Thanksgiving here. And then, then we're supposed to have that information in our mind when we come to the third Passover story in John's Gospel. All right, so chapter 6 of John, it says, that in the midst of the Passover, the the disciples and many crowds were gathered there with Jesus. And in verse 9, it says that Jesus has, this is verse 9 and 10, he has some bread, five barley loaves, and some fish. A boy gives them this. And he offers up thanks. Verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, there's that verb, Efkaristim. You see that? So he gives thanks and then he gives them the bread, and you know the multiplication story. Verse 14 When the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. What prophet is to come into the world? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, you don't have to go there right now. Moses had promised the people, he said, I, I can't go on the promised land with you. But God will raise up for you a prophet like me, who shall go before you in the places where He wants you to go. You shall listen to him, right A prophet like me. So the Jews were expecting that prophet to be raised up like Moses to lead the people. And so you can see this in a number of places in the New Testament where they're waiting for this prophet to come. Who was the first fulfillment of that? Joshua, Jesus. Right, who led them into the Promised Land, but they were waiting for this new Joshua to come, this new Jesus who would lead them into the Promised Land. But why do they think he could be the? This is this could possibly be the one because he gave them bread, right? He multiplied the bread like Moses had. He'd given them bread, so they saw this. They, said, Oh, it's got to be the new Moses. He's giving us. like giving us the manna. In fact, in the Jewish tradition at the time, there was a belief among the Jews that when the Messiah appeared, the manna would return. All right, so this is why, then, they said they want to make him king by force, because this has got to be the Messiah. He's not only the prophet who's coming to the world, the new Moses, but this is the Messiah as well. All right, so verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to was about It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come. So you know the story. They're on the, they're on the sea and then there's a storm and they're about to die. they think they're going to screaming and Jesus comes walking on the water and they think it's a ghost, they're afraid. and Jesus says, don't be afraid. it is I and Bo me is the divine name there by the way, more on that later on. And then he gets in the boat and they're on the other side. And so you will hopefully recall the Exodus story, right? It was after the Passover, that there was a miraculous crossing of a sea. Now, how did they cross the sea? By the power of Yahweh. Remember Moses says, do not be afraid, fear not. Even Jesus says, don't be afraid, right? Don't be frightened. So fear not, Yahweh will, will, will fight for you. These Egyptians, you'll never see them again. So then they cross the Red Sea. Here they're gonna cross the, the Sea of Galilee. said, so, "Well, maybe that's a coincidence. I mean, I can kind of see that. What it, remember what happened on the other side of the, of the Red Sea? They were hungry, right? So as soon as we get to the other side, look what's going to happen. As soon as they come over to the other side, they find Jesus. The crowds find Jesus again. And it says, they said, Rabbi, how did you come here? Jesus, verse 26, said, truly, truly, I say to you, seek me not because you saw signs, but because you eat your fill the loaves. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life. So they're hungry. They want more food. So God fed them at the Passover, and then they're wanting more food after the the cross of the sea. So here they were fed at the Passover, and so they want more food after the cross of the sea. And then he says, do not labor for food which perishes. Remember, that's what the manna was, the food which perished daily. And he says, don't labor for that. That's not what you want. And then they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. You believe in him whom he has sent. That was the whole theme of the Moses story, right? you got to believe, in, but they won't believe you sent me. Remember Moses kept saying that? And so they said, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe, right? And this is what Moses said. i got to have a sign. They're not going to believe. So Jesus is being shown. Again, it's that new Moses, that prophet like Moses. If you're the new Moses, what sign do you do? That we're going to believe in you what work do you perform our fathers ate man in the wilderness and it's written he gave them bread from heaven to eat right that's what moses gave to us what are you going to give us if you're the new moses jesus said i'm truly truly i say to you not moses who gave you the bread it's my father who gives you the true bread look at jesus switches the present tense there right he corrects their reading first of all it wasn't moses that gave the bread god gave the bread through moses okay but God gives you now the real bread, right? And look what it says. Uh, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life, highlight that word life, to the world. Verse 35, Jesus said to me, I am the bread of life. Highlight the word life there. He who comes to me shall not hunger, he who believes in me shall never thirst, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Now they begin to wonder, how is, why is he, is this the guy from Nazareth? How could he be saying he's come down from heaven? So they murmur. There's that theme of murmuring, right, with Moses. Remember that? Almost every other verse in the Exodus, right? The people are murmuring against him. So look what happens. Verse 47. Jesus says, Verse 47, truly, truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life eternal life there's a theme again well how is he going to have eternal life jesus said i'm the bread of life well what's the connection how can jesus be the bread of life and then someone believe in him have life Well, he's going to explain it right now he says i am the bread of life there's that word life again your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died right they never made it in the promised land those guys that ate the man in the wilderness they all died over a 40 year period this is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The theme of life is important here, eternal life. Yeah. What kind of life are we talking about? And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Life, 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 eternal life, live forever. Verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Underline raise maybe 15 times and put little stars and blinking lights around it. Okay? Raise. We're not talking about just eternal spiritual life off into the heavens flying around the angels. Raising us to eternal life. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not such as your fathers ate and died. He would say, This bread will live forever live forever you see that theme of life again what are we talking about he's, he said it very clearly he's not taught simply a spiritual existence eternal life but rather a physical resurrection as well okay so this is jesus teaching one passover one year before the last passover in which we saw him institute the eucharist Right? So he's prepared his disciples for this. When the people are listening, they say, this is too much. Many of them walk away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, will you too walk away? And they say, Lord, we don't know what you're talking about either, but we've got we've to understand you have the words of eternal life. There's that word life again, right? So the disciples don't understand it either at this point, but they do know this, that whatever he says happens. So they have the faith to remain and to see one year later what he's talking about right those who did not believe did not remain with him to see what he was talking about one year later those who did believe did have life because they would remain with him until the next Passover and see this all right so then that's the, the the Passover theme here in John 6 you can not only see the Passover but you also see You see this theme, uh, so it's looking up to the Passover and the present one, but it's also talking about this manna and the flesh, the bread and the flesh. And look at the theme in John 6. He's talking about bread and flesh, bread and flesh, bread and flesh. Why why does he do that? Because the people, after having been baptized to Moses in the cloud and the sea, then needed to eat. And so he's preparing them for what the Eucharist is and its place, in the sacraments of initiation into the church after you've been baptized and chrismate after you've come into the church you enter into the church and you receive his body and blood this is what paul will talk about later but before we get to paul i want you to look at a few other passages just quickly and i'll just remind you of uh, the first one remember the emmaus story in luke chapter 24 So before we get out of the Gospels, think back to Luke's Gospel again, Luke chapter 24. Remember, he was revealed in the breaking of the bread. Now, any commentary in the Gospel of Luke, I don't care if the guy's a Baptist, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Melkite, Russian, Coptic, whatever, anybody with a PhD in Biblical Studies will tell you from a legitimate school, will tell you that that is Eucharistic language there, okay? Whether or not they believe in the real presence is another topic and their denomination they might be coming from. But anyone who's studied any biblical studies in depth and know the early church history on this, know that Lucan language for Eucharist is the breaking of the bread. You see it there in, in the Eucharistic words in Luke 22. You see it there in the uh, Emmaus story. He was revealed in the breaking of the bread. So Jesus' presence among them, though they couldn't see it before, at the moment of breaking of the bread, they suddenly recognized him. And then they run back to Jerusalem, it says, and they explain to the apostles, we recognized him in the breaking of the bread. All right, now turn with me then to Luke, or to Acts chapter two. This is Luke's sequel. This is part two of his gospel. We already looked at this together. We don't try to look at all the details, but you remember when the people were cut to the heart, verse 37, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sin, And you shall receive the Holy Spirit. We already talked about those part one, part two last last week, right? But there's a little more here we need to look at. Look what it says in verse 42. After they were baptized, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they listened to what the apostles taught. Apostolic, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship that is being one body, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, what does the breaking of bread mean there? They suddenly got really hungry. Once they were baptized, all of a sudden Christians suddenly just become very hungry people. Before they were baptized, they, were, they didn't really eat much. Once every couple of months. But after they were baptized, suddenly they were devoted to breaking bread. No, again, any commentary will tell you that's Eucharistic language there. That's a reference to the Christian Eucharist. They would gather together, listen to the apostles' teaching, which is what we do every Sunday. We listen to the scriptures, most importantly, the New Testament. And then we, we are in communion with each other, right? We, we, we pray and we forgive each other for anything we've done. We're united as one body. And then once we're, once we're all together in fellowship, then we break bread and we pray and thank God for what we received. Right? That's the Eucharistic meal. Again, any commentary, anybody, any guy by a PhD will tell you that. All right, so then you see it again in chapter two, verse forty-six. Daily, breaking bread in their homes. This is before they actually had churches built on the, you know, on the street corner. Christianity was a per- was persecuted at these early stages. The Christians would gather in the local largest home of the neighborhood, the local Christian, and those became actually the foundations of the early church buildings. Okay, so then also, this is right off the bat. You see it at the beginning of Acts, but you see this also at the end of Acts. So look later in Jack, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're coming to the close of the book. Paul's traveling around. He's heading back to Jerusalem. And on his way back, it says chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday. It's Saturday evening at this point. It's probably about 7, 8 o'clock. Sometime after sunset. When we are gathered together to break bread, why did they gather together to break bread? You hear about a sermon by Paul that goes on all too long. I think some of my parishioners can associate with that. And then after that, Paul goes back up into the room and breaks bread. Breaks bread. You can see how central the theme of the breaking bread. They weren't just gathered together to have a Bible study. We were listening to Paul preaching. They were gathered together to break bread. He says in the beginning, and when the poor kid fell out of the window. This is no time to I be mean, just going back upstairs and having some snacks. And no, they go back up. Once they realize the kid's not dead and they finish their job, that it was to break bread. They celebrate the Eucharist. All right, now Paul talks about the Eucharist in two places clearly in his epistles. So let's now look for, this is what we did, we looked at baptism chrismation. We kind of worked our way through the Old Testament, through the Gospels, Jesus' teaching, His commandments on the subject, and then, and then we went into the Acts, and we saw what they were doing, and then we saw the theologians, right, the new, the epistles, where Paul and the others are talking about these things. So what is how does Paul talk about the Eucharist? Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same supernatural food and they all drank the same supernatural drink. They drank from the supernatural rock which followed, and that rock was Christ. Okay, so what's he talking about? He's talking about typology here, right? That rock was Christ. Well, was Jesus actually that rock? No, it was a rock, okay? It was a rock they struck, you remember. And the water came out of it. And that rock... That stream of water followed them and gave them water wherever they needed to go. And so he says that rock is an image of Christ to which they were saved. And the manna and the quail flesh, that supernatural food, the stuff, that came, that's related to what you're doing as Corinthians. That supernatural drink they had, that, that water, this is, this is how God saved them. So you can see all the three images here. Why is Paul doing this? Well, they, the Corinthians have been baptized not into Moses, but into Christ. The Corinthians don't have the cloud, the shekinah of glory and, glory, and they have the Holy Spirit now. The Corinthians aren't eating flaky manna stuff off the sand and quail dropping out of the sky, but the antitype, the fulfillment of that, the food which gives them life, that is the body and blood of Jesus, also the image of the water here. The So then, in the typology, Paul is showing the Corinthians that they are in the antitype. In fact, he uses the language of verse 6. He says, these are warnings the RSV has. These are TP. These are types. And in, these were images for us to understand. Right? Okay, so typology. You've had many studies. I think my brother did a whole lecture on it for the ICC on typology. What is it? So these are images in the Old Testament that have their fulfillment in the New. And so the Corinthians were tragically, after they'd been baptized in Christ and received the Eucharist, they were starting to fall back into polytheism, paganism. Just like the Israelites, who had had all of this, fell back into polytheism paganism, over and over again through those 40 year wandering. The women started the golden calf at Mount Sinai. And so, he, in fact, he mentions all of those here in this next paragraph. He says, Don't be like they were. Because they didn't make it in the promised land, right? Because of all that. You've got to make it in, Corinthians. You're not done with the journey. You still got to get to the promised land. You got to cross the Jordan with Joshua at the end. So then he says, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Through we all partake of the one bread. Right now, notice that Paul doesn't defend what he's saying here. He's using this assumed information to make his argument, which is coming next. That is, don't participate in pagan sacrificial meals because you're gonna you're gonna become one with those gods. Okay, so we can set that aside for another study on the point of epistles in the corinthian communities what was the problem there but notice paul making his argument of why corinthians shouldn't go to pagan meals uses his basic catechesis that he can assume the corinthians are aware of that he's obviously taught them that the participation in the the cup and the spread is a participation in the body and blood of jesus and through it we become one body we become one body what body the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Okay, so then Paul goes on in chapter 11 to talk about this. Again, you know the Corinthians, they had lots of liturgical problems. So he goes on to comment about this. One of the problems with the Corinthians is when they got together, they would celebrate the Passover meal like all the other Christians were doing, right? They would celebrate the Passover meal every first day of the week. They'd get together and they would celebrate the Passover meal. As far as we can discern in this early stage of liturgy, They did exactly what Jesus did. His disciples got together. They ate. They drank. They had a meal. And at the end of the meal, when everyone was there and had eaten their fill, then they celebrated the Eucharist. This is the earliest stage of the the liturgy. They're imitating, as far as you can discern, what the disciples had done with Jesus. After the meal, Jesus then gave them the bread and wine. You remember this, right? They'd already eaten. So then... In the Corinthian community, they were doing the same thing. But Corinthians, what are they? They're Greeks, right? They're not Jews. They don't have any understand the ancient sacred Passover meal and it's, and how to celebrate it. So what they do? Well, Greeks, if they know anything. They know how to throw a party, right? They know how to eat and drink. So the Corinthians were eating to their fill, getting drunk, and then it came time to celebrate the Eucharist. They weren't ready for it. All right. So now look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter eleven. I want you to look at your Bibles. Look what it says here. He says, look, Corinthians, let me tell you what's going on here. Verse 20, when you meet together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat? Right? You're not even, what you're doing is so bad, you can't even call it the Eucharist. And he chastises them for what they did. And then he says this. He says, verse 23, look at this, verse 23. For I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread verse 24 and when he had given thanks there's that word given thanks you see that when he had given thanks, he broke it and said notice again now pauline and luke and material all biblical scholars are telling you it's all related paul and luke use the same vocabulary because luke was one of paul's disciples so broke the bread and paul uses that language the breaking of the bread and you even get the thanking to give thanks and so he says do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way after the cup. Co- supper, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, you hear the language sound just like Luke 22. That's because Luke and Paul are theologically and historically related, right? Paul is, and Luke's gospel in many ways is almost Paul's gospel. You could almost say it that way. Luke was Paul's disciple. All right, so verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, what is it important to know about Jesus' death? How is that related to the Eucharist? Because it's to the Eucharist that we receive life, right? Jesus' death is life-giving. So look what it says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, right? Like they were before, they were drunk and unprepared. He says, we'll be guilty of profaning symbols. Oh, that's not what it says. Well, of profaning the body and blood, the body and blood of the Lord. No doubt there, Paul understands the real presence, right? Or at least he believes that. I don't know, understands. That's something that's a great mystery for all of us. But clearly there, you can see the early apostolic understanding of the real presence in the Eucharist. Participation in the blood and, and, and body of Jesus and here, uh, profaning it, if you unworthily participate in it. All right, so then this is Paul's teaching on the Eucharist, right? He's, what does he use? He uses the image of the, of the manna and the quail and the water from the rock, just like Jesus did. But notice he unites it with the crossing of the Red Sea. He sees the sacraments of initiation as typologically being prefigured in the life of Israel, all three together right? All three together. Now, let's take a look and see what the Catechism has to say about this. In the Eucharist, the Catechism on the Eucharist, we're looking at just a few paragraphs here. This is paragraph 1322. Thirteen twenty-two. The Holy Eucharist completes Christian initiation. Did you hear that? It completes Christian initiation. That means without the Eucharist, your initiation into the body of Christ is incomplete right so watch this those who have been raised to the dignity of the royal priesthood by the baptism look at the order here and configured more deeply to Christ by confirmation look at how they use Christ and confirmation again right chrismation there's that second element why did they say Christ there why didn't they say more deeply to Jesus so they want to remind you about that chrismation image the Holy Spirit participate with the whole community in the Lord's own sacrifice by means of the Eucharist. Notice there's no mention of age there. Notice what the catechism did there. We've already talked about the order of baptism and confirmation, but shouldn't you expect something like this? Baptism configured more deeply to Christ by confirmation, participate once at the age of reason with the whole community in the Lord's sacrifice by means of the Eucharist. Notice that's absent. What's the catechism doing there? It's going to address later on this issue, and we're going to talk about that in a second, of the historical reasons of where we get the idea of age of reason. But notice right off the bat, it doesn't mention that. It sets that aside in its initial paragraph. Alright? So age of reason is obviously not something central to the theme here, but it is an interesting question, which the catechism is going to address and we're going to talk about. 1323, paragraph 1323, look at this. At the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharist, sacrifice of his body and blood. There's that Passover, Eucharist, right? We talked about that. This he did in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until he should come again. How? How does that happen? Well, it depends on what you understand the Eucharist to be. What is the Eucharist? What is the Eucharist? You say, what's the body and blood of Jesus? Yes, it is. But how does the How does that perpetuate what happened to the cross throughout history? Well, the Eucharist is to be consumed, right? That's what it's for, to be consumed by the faithful. And through that consumption, the death and resurrection of Jesus is perpetuated through our baptism, chrismation, and participation of the Eucharist into him through our death and resurrection. So it makes present throughout history What Jesus did at the Passover for all eternity, right? The church presents to the world the opportunity to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it happened 2,000 years ago through the sacraments. We're able to participate in that. So it says, 1323, and this paragraph goes on and says, And so to entrust to the beloved spouse, the church, a memorial of his death and, look at this, resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a Paschal banquet, a Passover banquet meal, in which Christ is consumed. Look at that word, consumed there. The mind is filled with grace. So we consume Christ. Our mind is filled with grace. Grace. But what does it do to our bodies look at this and a pledge of future glory is given to us underline that a pledge of future glory when you read in the new testament you find the glory of jesus is his resurrection we're going to participate in his glory paul will explain over and over that's a resurrection that is coming for us Participate in his resurrection in his glory it's a pledge of future glory, of resurrection. Paragraph 1324. The Eucharist is the source and summit of Christian life. The source and the summit of Christian life. The other sacraments, indeed, all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the Apostles, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ Himself, our Passover. Our Passover, from death to life. Then the Catechism goes on in paragraph 1328 to explain in the next few paragraphs the meaning, Evcharishtin, we talked about that. The Catechism goes on in paragraph 1333 and following to talk about the typology from the Old Testament, Melchizedek, and the Passover, and the manna. We talked about those together already. You can read that on your own. But for the sake of time, I'd like you now to turn to paragraph 1382, the Passover banquet the Passover meal, or the Paschal banquet. Paschal banquet, just fancy words for Passover meal. The Mass is at the same time and inseparably the sacrificial memorial. So it's at the same time that in inseparably the sacrificial memorial in which the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated and the sacred banquet of communion with the Lord's body and blood. Now, is the Lord in the tomb or has he risen? Christ is risen from the dead. When you participate in the Eucharist, you are not eating the dead flesh of the crucified Lord. When you participate in the Eucharist, you are participating and consuming the resurrected flesh and blood of Jesus. The celebration of the Eucharist sacrifice is wholly directed. Holy directed, look at this toward intimate union of the faithful with Christ through communion. Now, is Christ dead or risen? Christ is risen from the dead. We are being united in the Eucharist to his risen body so that, through his resurrection, we might be raised from the dead. Paragraph 1384, the Lord addresses an invitation to us, urging us to receive him the sacrament of the Eucharist. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have no life in you. This is how important the Eucharist was for the early Christians. This is what the Catechism is talking about, how important it is for us as Christians. And how important it is for those who are baptized and chrismated to receive the Eucharist in order to have Christ's resurrected life in them. A pledge of future glory. Paragraph 1402. This is the last section of the Catechism. I'm going to move on to a quick survey of the history of these sacraments and, and celebration. Paragraph 1402. In an ancient prayer, the church acclaims the mystery of the Eucharist. O oh, sacred banquet in which Christ is received as food, the memory of his passion is renewed, the soul is filled with the grace. That's that mind or the intellect filled with grace, right? And a pledge of life to come. A pledge of life to come is given to us. If the Eucharist is a memorial of the Passover of the Lord Jesus, if by our communion to the altar we are filled with every heavenly blessing and grace, then, then, so this whole paragraph tells you, then, therefore, underline that then maybe 300 times, the Eucharist is also in anticipation, a foretaste, of the heavenly glory to come what's the heavenly glory that doesn't mean flying up in the clouds that means the heavenly glory that's coming down right jesus is returning to raise our bodies from the dead and then he doesn't run and fly off with us after the resurrection of the dead there's the judgment the wicked go to eternal lake of fire and the righteous remain there on earth with jesus waiting and then the heavenly jerusalem descends and god's dwelling is with man Not man dwelling with God. God dwells with man. That is the theme of salvation history. Paragraph 1403. At the last supper, the Lord himself directed his disciples' attention toward the fulfillment of Passover, the kingdom of God. I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of new with you in the Father's kingdom. Whenever the church celebrates the Eucharist, she remembers his promise and turns her gaze to him who is to come. In her prayer, she calls for his coming. Maranatha. This is the Aramaic. Come, Lord Jesus, may your grace come and this world pass away, right, so that the new world can come. That's language right out of the book of Revelation. All right, paragraph 1404. The church knows the Lord comes even now in his Eucharist and that he is there in our midst. However, this presence is veiled. Therefore, we celebrate the Eucharist awaiting the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This whole thing, the Eucharist celebration, is a moment, an intimate moment, when we look forward. We experience Christ's presence now and look forward to his return. This is why, historically, Christians always celebrate the Eucharist facing east, because of the return of the glory cloud from the east. This is from Ezekiel's prophecy. Also, the early Christians come from the mother church, Jerusalem, where they celebrated facing the Mount of Olives, which is east of Jerusalem, because Christ would return just as he left from the top of Mount of Olives, facing east. Okay, so asking to share in your glory when every tear will be wiped away on that day, we shall see you, our God, as you are. We shall become like you, right, immortal, and praise you forever through Christ our Lord. And look at this last paragraph. There is no sure pledge. Look at that. No sure pledge or clearer sign of this great hope of the new heavens and new earth, the new creation in which righteousness dwells than the Eucharist. Every time this mystery is celebrated, the work of our redemption is carried on. We break one bread that provides the medicine of immortality. Underline that word, immortality. That's not just spiritual immortality. You already have that. It's physical immortality, the antidote of death. The antidote of death in the food that makes us live forever. How? In Jesus Christ. By Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's what the Catechism talks about, how it talks about the Eucharist. You could also, you want to go back and review, of course, the section Baptism and Chrismation. The Catechism does not just talk about the Eucharist here in this section, as we talked about Already, the Catechism, when it talks about these three sacraments of initiation, it wants to talk about them in unity. So as you're talking about the baptism, it weaves in and out of chrismation and Eucharistic language. And then when you're talking about the chrismation section or confirmation section, it weaves in and out of baptism and Eucharistic language. And then when you come to the Eucharist, it keeps talking about this looking back to the resurrection from baptism, which is going to go forward, which unites us, and gives the opportunity of future resurrection. This is the last section here going to talk a little bit about the The history of the celebration of these sacraments. And Jean Danielou, my brother mentioned before our lecture tonight, he mentioned Jean Danielou's book, The Bible and the Liturgy. He'll talk some about that in that book if you want to go back and read that. In the earliest form of these celebration sacraments, in the early church, baptism was given when someone repented of their sin. They repented their sin and said, I'll never do that again. I want to become part of this, this new religion. Then they were baptized. They were baptized for the forgiveness of their sin, as we heard in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Right? And then they received the laying on of hands. That was chrismation, which very early on was joined with oil because of the imagery there. And then they received the Eucharist. Now, how did this happen? Well, if a bishop was not present, they would baptize the individual, but then wait for the bishop, the apostle in their midst, to show up. You saw this in in Acts. We talked about in Acts chapter 8, right? Then the apostle would show up. The bishop would show up. The bishop is just simply the stationary apostle. And lay hands on them. They would receive the Holy Spirit. And then they would be able to receive the Eucharist. So what happened is in the early church, there began to be a problem. As the church is spreading at such a rate, which is unimaginable for us today, they're baptizing thousands thousands and thousands. Everywhere they turn, a church is growing and building. They're baptizing thousands and thousands and thousands. So the church is growing so fast that what they do is the bishops send out priests and deacons to outline parishes as they're developing in new cities and new villages. And in some regions, in the east, for example, the priests were given permission to to not only baptize, Lord the deacons, but to also confirm. All priests have the ability to confirm to chrismate, but they are given jurisdiction by that by the bishop permission to do that at certain times. In an emergency, any priest without calling a bishop has blanket permission emergency. But in in the East, the priests were given general permission to chrismate as soon as the, someone was baptized, baby or adult. And the reason was was to keep the liturgical unity of these two sacraments together. In the West, and again, it's not like you draw a line here. There's regions so this is happening. The catechism talks about this. In the West, there was a tendency to hold off the laying on of hands until the bishop would show up. And when the bishop came, then he would lay his hands on anyone who had been baptized since his last visit, babies or adults and then all of them babies or adults at that service would receive their first communion you can still see this by the way in the restored order of the sacraments in some of these dioceses in the rome diocese where they're doing this the bishop shows up he chrismates at age seven though we'll talk about saying and then they all receive communion on that day right notice the order's been restored okay so then well how do we get to where we are today Well, in the East, it basically remains like that. Like I was explaining to you, our parishes, the priest baptizes, and then immediately when the baby comes out of the baptismal font or the adult comes out of the baptismal font, they're charismatic. And then at that same service, ideally – this is before the Eucharistic service or part of it. Then that individual, baby or adult, receives communion. So how does the baby receive communion? Well, we give them the precious blood. And this is the this is the little link that unlocks the mystery here of what happened. In the East, the precious blood was always given to the faithful along with the, the bread, along with the body. Okay? By in sure and various methods and things. And so babies who received back then, as today is still today uh, in our churches, they received by receiving just the precious blood until they start to chew. Once they start to chew, the babies, you know, get to a point where they're starting to eat, you know, little bits of food at the dinner table home. The priest asks the mom, is he eating yet? Yeah. So the priest gives the baby a little crumb dipped in the precious blood and puts it in the baby's mouth. Very tiny little crumb. It's about maybe six months or a year old, depending on what the mother's doing with the baby as far as solids go. And then once the baby hits one to two years old, they're receiving a fairly larger piece and a larger piece until they get the full size in adulthood. In the West, what happened was because there was a holding off of chrismation or confirmation until the bishop showed up, there was already a separation starting to develop between baptism. In confirmation but as the catechism explains that simply because the bishop was not there there was not a theological reason for the separation other than to keep the image of the gift of the spirit with the bishop which is very important we keep that in the east by using chrism that's blessed by the bishop so it's a reminder of the bishop's presence us. in the in the west though to try and keep that connection they waited until the bishop showed up that practice is still in place at least until recently in Central and South America and in the Philippines. When the bishop comes on his rounds each year to visit the parish or every two years on his diocese or every five years, when he gets there, he confirms all the all those who were baptized since his last visit, babies or adults. You know, it was the practice of no relative recently. I don't know what they're doing today. Okay, so now in the East, because you have that separation to develop and the diocese getting bigger and bigger, the separation by time between baptism and confirmation is longer and longer. Now, remember, the order is still preserved here. The order is still preserved. You don't receive the Eucharist until you confirm, which is the day the bishop shows up to confirm you. Okay? What happens is, toward as you get into the Middle Ages, there starts to develop, for various reasons, a problem. Christians are not receiving communion as often as they should. And there's a couple of things that happen around this time, and some of them are centered on Eucharistic problems. The chalice stops being brought down to the people from the altar. If you've ever been to a uh, 1962 Missal Mass, an old Latin Mass, you've probably have seen this, where the priest comes with the discos, or the, the plate with the Eucharist, with the bread, the body of Jesus, but leaves the chalice on the altar. Your modern experience in the new Mass in the West, this is a restoration of bringing the chalice back. But that's about a 1,000 years ago. Is when that started being left up on the altar. Now, what's the problem? The problem is that babies can't receive communion until the bread <laughs> they can chew. And back then, babies would be nursed for much longer than we do in our modern practice, although that's starting to return. So the the baby is though being brought up by the mother, when the mother's coming up to receive communion, the baby can't receive because the chalice is there up on the altar. They would take a little drop from the baby's mouth, which St. Augustine talks about this, giving the drop of the blood to the baby. Uh, so we're talking now, we're, we're in the 10th, 11th century. 10th, 11th century is when you start to see these things developing. By the time you get to the 13th century, the church actually has to make a declaration. This is at the council of, this is Lateran 4, 1215. Uh, the people are not coming up for communion anymore. Again, there's various historical reasons we don't have time to get into. So the council says you've got to receive communion at least once a year. You probably have heard of the Easter obligation. This is where this comes from. You've got to receive communion. You go to confession, and you receive communion at least once a year, right? And when do you go to confession? When you're at the age of reason, right? So what starts to happen is people start receiving communion again more regularly those who go to confession and who are at the age of reason. And so you've got a couple different factors happening here at the same time. You've got a separation of baptism and Eucharist and confirmation due to whether or not the bishop showed up. You also have something that's furthering that distinct separation until the baby can actually start to chew the bread, which is given to them. There's no need to confirm until you're going to receive communion because confirmation is the doorway to the Eucharist. And so in places where the chalice will be left on the altar, you have another reason why the, the, the babies are not receiving until they can start to chew. And therefore, it's going to delay confirmation even further, whether the bishop's around or not. And so then, when you get to the time of the Reformation, now we're going to fast forward a couple more centuries. It's the Reformation. The common practice is this. Baptize the baby, and then you confirm them when they would be obliged to fulfill their Easter obligation. You're not culpable to fulfill the Easter obligation until you're at the age of reason. Right? Until you're at the age of reason, you don't have to fulfill the Easter obligation. You see how this works? You have to go to confession on yourself. Yes. So this is where this starts to develop, this idea of age of reason is something you need to do, and this idea of understanding is connected with confirmation. you confirm, then at that service, then they would receive the Eucharist. And so in some regions, in France and Italy and Germany, the age of reason was, was different. They have some places in Germany that we're talking, this is the 14th, 15th century in, in France and England, one-year-old. One-year-old is the age of reason. I said, at that moment, a child starts screaming, anyone who's got a one-year-old, you know what this is about. That child's got to be at the age of reason right now. They know what they're doing, right and wrong. They got a sense of it. So they would confirm them and give them community. In some places, they said, no, 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 not a one-year-old. They're not really culpable yet. And so they really aren't half of a full yet. So they would wait until they were three, four, five years old. Some regions, five years old. Some regions, seven years old. Some places, late as 12 years old. And they said, you're really, really culpable then. And so what's happening is con- – Going to confession, as part of the Easter obligation, is coming into play here, this idea also of whether or not you're obliged to fulfill this, this commandment from letter 4. And this is why, when you come to the Council of Trent, this is why the Council of Trent makes a statement like this. The Council of Trent says, It is not necessary to confirm someone until they're of the age of reason. Well, see? Tell someone the age of read. you have to confirm them. Why are they saying that? Well, Again, context, context, context. You have to go back to Lateran 4. You're not obliged until, under that obligation of the Easter obligation, to receive communion, to go to confession for it, until you're the age of reason, obviously. And so after Trent, after Trent, people began to ask the question, well, what is the actual age of reason? And for the sake of unity, the Council of Trent put out a catechism. The catechism, this is in... 1566, the Catechism of the Council of Trent comes out, which is kind of a uh, a popular edition of the documents. And in there, it explains that the age of reason is seven. So, you know, regions were varied on this. Some were around four, three. Others said 12, 15. They said, let's meet at the middle. Age seven will make everyone happy. So age seven became kind of the standard from after the Council of Trent until today in the West. This is where age seven comes in, that number seven. All right, so what happens? Well, you know that most people don't listen to councils, right? You know the history of the church. After a council, you think, well, are they solved? No, it takes centuries until everyone anyone figures it out. This is before fax machines and emails. So what happens is in many places, they continue to do what they were doing before, confirming age two, confirming age. This is why in Central South America also, you know, Central South America, they, were, they had churches and cities and everything established, dioceses, long before uh, you know, the Reformation. In some of these older Spanish missionary regions, they just continued to whatever they were doing before. But in France, in places where they were pushing chrismation later and later, there was some place in France where they were pushing out until age 19, confirmation age 19, saying you're not really at the age of reason till 19. This is the whole reason thing in France, right, in the Enlightenment period and post-Enlightenment, age of reason. And so by the time you get to the uh, – Early 1900s you got a major problem in France the Christians in many places are not being confirmed until age 18, 19 which means they haven't yet received first communion so Pius XII steps in with a document called Quam Singulari Quam Singulari and he condemned this practice in France and said you can't do this you're preventing these people from receiving communion long after they're at the age of reason. And the Council of Trent's Catechism stated the age of reason was seven. We all agreed to it. Now get to work. Well, I think people listen. So what happened is finally what happened in France is they requested in another reason they requested to be allowed to give communion at age seven and hold off confirmation until later. That way they could fulfill Pius the tense request. And condemnation of their practice, but at the same time keep their confirmation out there as a age of reason thing. They'd already developed catechesis for it and all that, and explanations for why they were doing it. So that practice then, that permission was given in 1932. The Vatican granted that permission to give on exceptional situations to give the Eucharist before confirmation in places where they couldn't, the bishop couldn't arrive at a reasonable amount of time. Give them the Eucharist age seven and then confirm later on when the bishop showed up. That was an exception given in 1932. That practice then spread from France and all over the Western world until today in the United States. This is what most people associate with the order, but this is a relatively recent event. Some of you who are here today, your grandparents would have been shocked by this information. My grandmother or my mother says born in 1907. Okay, so I think some of you, you have grandparents or even parents who lived in a context in which it was totally different from our experience today in regards to this. All right, so that is basically the place in which we find ourselves today. The catechism now has come out. In the West, this catechism has attempted to fix some problems that have developed through catechesis. And so this catechism is the beginning. Along with the work of Jean Danielou and Pope Benedict and Spirit of the Liturgy and this catechism, there's an attempt to try to restore some earlier practices that are a little bit more theologically sound and catechetically more beneficial than the present situation. say, well, what's the problem with the present situation? People aren't baptizing their kids anymore. They don't worry about confirmation anymore. Most people's understanding is it's a bar mitzvah. And what's the Eucharist? Well, something like seventy what seventy five percent of Sunday Catholics. These are the churchgoers. Don't really believe in the real presence. We got a problem. Lex orandi, lex credendi. Right? As you pray, will be as you believe. And so it's very important to restore proper liturgical practice in order to restore proper belief. Okay? And this is why you find many dioceses around in the United States and other places like Domino's. You're hearing them. If you go on the internet, find restored order of the sacraments like dominoes are phony. Look, these are all, in, for the most part, very conservative dioceses where you have a new young bishop who's pretty conservative and he's well educated in this stuff and he wants to restore the faith in his diocese and he realized the way to do that is to restore the liturgical practice. All right. Now, so that is the end of our lecture proper. Now we're going to move to question and answer. I know many of you have
1: some questions here. Thank you, Father Sebastian, for a wonderful, wonderful presentation. Uh, very informative. We do have a number of questions uh, coming in. The first one uh, we'll go ahead and take from Ernest. Go ahead.
3: Okay, uh, Father, I have a question for you. You said that in the Eastern right, this is what y'all do, that you're able to do the sacraments at an early age. Have you noticed that your parishioners actually believe more fully compared to us in the West? And do they stay with the church and not leave the church?
2: Oh, that'd be a job for a statistician, I think. Um, but I would say that in the Eastern churches, and this is not to say one is better than the other by any means, okay, but just to answer your question, I would say that in the Eastern churches, Eastern Catholic, among the Orthodox, uh, belief in the real presence of the Eucharist is, is universal. I don't, I don't think I've ever met an Eastern Catholic, a Greek Orthodox, who doesn 't believe in the real presence so i, I, I don 't know whether you can say this is due to the liturgical practice or whatever, but I do know that at least in my experience, I'm, my brother probably had the same experience. I have never met a, uh, a Christian in in my in my congregation or in the Eastern tradition that doesn 't believe in the real presence as far as the faith goes and keeping the faith I think what what 's important here and, and maybe again it's statistics would be more a better you know evidence of this, but what's important is that what is being given to us in baptism and chrismation the Eucharist? Why is the catechism, or why did the early church chrismate, baptize, chrismate, and give the Eucharist to babies, and to the children, growing up all the way through? Because they saw, though the grace that they're being given might be more than they understand or can use at the moment, they will grow into it. They will grow into it. And so I think there is maybe an advantage there to what the early church, and I don't want to say Eastern church is doing necessarily, but just simply what the early church was doing the first thousand years, East and West. um, There was an advantage there in that you're giving the person the capacity so that when the, when there is a need, when they come to that age of understanding or when they come to a situation which they need that grace, it's already there in place. It's like, Preparing somebody for something which before they experience it, you prepare them, you give them the equipment they're going to need to deal with the situation, the toolbox, even though they may not really understand the use of those tools until they get on the job and start doing it, right? And so I think that's why you might find in the East and West, again, Augusta has some beautiful comments about the, the Eucharist being given to the babies, uh, of how it's giving somebody all the tools they are going to need even before they yet... Understand how to use those tools, or may need them. Father Hezekiah, so I think
1: you, did you have a comment there? Uh, the only thing I would add is, is in relationship to chrismation or confirmation, that please don't uh, you know delay with the with the children. If if in your parish, confirmation is done at thirteen or fourteen years old, maybe you're, maybe you can ask the priest for early entrance at twelve years old or even eleven years old, as to, to the very point that my my brothers. Uh, making here is is to to strengthen them but please for the sake of all things holy never tell the children that they are going to finish just just enroll in this last catechism class so that you can get confirmed and then you can decide whether you want to continue or not it is not as he said a catholic bar mitzvah confirmation is not an opportunity For me to choose whether I want to be a Christian, confirmation is an opportunity for Jesus to choose me. It is the beginning of the journey, not the end of a journey. And when we tell the children that you graduate from catechism class, I've heard it myself, when you finish your confirmation class, you just shot yourself in the foot. Because guess what 99.9% of of teenagers are going to do? They're going to just walk out the door. See you later. I graduated, I don't have to do it anymore. Okay? And then you made a good non-Christian out of a former Christian. Okay, uh, We have a question coming in online, Father, from Lisa saying, how do I respond to Protestants who believe that they have, she says, the communion bread at their services and who also say that in John 6 they only need to believe to have eternal life. And maybe I just force the issue a little further. I've heard some Protestants say, well, we have the Eucharist. We have, yeah, we have the body and blood of Jesus. Obviously, they're not meaning what we mean by it. And All of a sudden, we're in this kind of almost impossible situation where they're claiming to have something that they don't have. How can we respond to them? Okay, so two questions that are related.
2: First of all, you should know this. If you've got any Protestant friends, evangelical Christianity is not Lutheranism. It's not Calvinism. It's not Zwingli. It's not Reformation Protestantism anymore evangelical Christianity is slowly looking more and more Catholic, okay? They're beginning to ask questions. Why don't we baptize the baby? What do they do now? They do these dedication services and stuff, right? And some places are starting to baptize babies. Why don't we have a laying on of hands like they did in the early church and so they start to try to bring back some sort of a confirmation service? And they look at the Eucharistic passage that we just looked at and they realize this is the real presence of the Eucharist. And so they look at what they have, this communion plate coming around with the bread and some grape juice, and they say, well, wait a minute. This must be the real body and blood of Jesus. And they start to reestablish this idea of a belief in this. Now, that is not the body and blood of Jesus they have. This is some bread and some grape juice. Welch usually in most places. But you can, that is a great opportunity for some common ground. When you are talking to a Protestant friend, there are two very important topics. If you listen to all conversion stories, they will all have two very important elements in them. The moment when they realized that Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone, was not taught anywhere in the Bible, in the Bible alone. And then when they began to realize the apostolic teaching on the real presence of the Eucharist and how important it is for salvation. Those two elements, listen to Scott Hahn's conversion story. Go listen to Jeff Cavins' conversion story. Go listen to Marcus Grodai, all the big names from EWTN. My brother was talking about EWTN earlier. You go listen to those conversion stories very carefully and listen for those two events. You're going to see that those were the major watershed moments for them. And so what you need to do, what we need to do as Christians is be able to talk to our separated brethren who are, as the catechism says, partly in the church but partly not really, right? We're partly in communion with them but partly not really why do we say that because they've been baptized but they have not been confirmed and they have not received the eucharist so their initiation in the body of christ is incomplete and so tragically unfortunately it also has to do with some in some regions with our babies to our children but their their initiation my protestant friend is his initiation is not complete maybe a lutheran he's baptized into christ but he's his initiation is not yet complete his our relationship to him in the body of christ is not he's separated still partners not yet completely unified and that's why it's important that they be chrismated and receive the eucharist
3: right father sebastian last week or in this just now you mentioned how An exception was made for how uh, confirmation was separated from baptism and Eucharist was allowed to be placed in before and the exception became the norm despite the apostolic tradition. We were talking about it later and we see a parallel with the exception being made for receiving communion in the hand has now spread to becoming somewhat of a norm, at least in America. But, one thing that seems different is that we've been told a few times that the early church received in the hand. So it seems to be more in the apostolic tradition, but all of the apostolic faiths prefer, including the the church, the Catholic church prefer reception on the tongue. Can you please help us to understand the parallel and then the distinction?
2: Okay. So again, really big question. That's for another hour, I think, but uh, the history of all of that. So the it, it is true that as far as we can in the early there are some references in the early fathers' church that communion was given in the hand of the individual. Okay, there are some references to that. But there's also uh, in the early church when you went to confession, before you were given absolution in some regions, they would make you put on animal clothes. Okay, and make you run around making animal noises in the church. As a sign that you'd re- you'd left your image likeness of God and returned to animal likeness, okay? Not sure if that's one we want to necessarily bring back just because they were doing it in the early church. There's some places in the early church when they would not give you absolution for one year, three years after confession, sometimes until your death so we have some practices if we're going to use that kind of an analogy that, well, in the early church they did it this way, and so therefore we should do that. No, we have to ask the question, why did they do that? And then we have to ask the question, why are we no longer doing that? If the reason why we're no longer doing that thing is a legitimate reason, then this is part of the growth and development of the church. It's understanding of this. When you give communion in the hand, you had a major liturgical disaster on your hand, at least potential, Right? This person received communion, but now you have crumbs on their hands. Now what do you do? So the, the church realized that it was a lot simpler, a lot less of a danger of, of a problem, is if the person just comes up and the priest or the deacon puts the communion in their mouth, and then the priest or the deacon then go rinse their hands in the water, and the water is properly disposed of in the earth, poured in the earth. So it's a, a logical development. Okay, so it makes sense, and this is why the church has done it. And today, of course, if you look at the return to the practice of between the hand, we see the problem that was trying to be avoided by the change back again, right? Yeah. People have, they have crumbs in their hand. You have people putting the host in their pocket. I know one priest who went to visit a, a family, and uh, they were showing him the wedding album, and as he's going through the wedding album, oh look, Father, this is when we were married. Oh, that's so nice. They were an older couple. And look, Father, oh, and this is a host from the mass. The priest, what? He opened that. He opened the album and he consumed the host. Been sitting there in their photo album on their shelf for forty or fifty years. Right? So there's a problem with that. Not everyone necessarily understands what they're seeing and when. And so you, there's liturgical. Ways in which you can prevent things like from that happening and so that's I think again you can see not only you see in early practice just because someone doing something in the early church doesn't mean we should be doing that today. What we have to do is say if we're doing something different from the early church, we have to ask the question: How did we get to where we are? Was it intended by the church, or was it an accident of various historical events? which is what, we're gonna, what we are gonna, actually can see if we look at the history of the separation of sacraments and the reordering, there's no declaration from the church every few centuries about why these sacraments should be separated and theological reasons why they should be reordered. No. What you see is an accident of history. The, the people are not receiving. The chalice left the so now the baby can't receive. People have stopped receiving. So you have the age of reason coming in and when they're called to fulfill the Easter obligation. It's a a long historical, complicated mess, and so what the catechism is doing is looking back at how we got to where we are in, in, in the West with this. Said, wait a minute, there's an earlier practice that makes more theological and catechetical sense. Why don't we go back to that? That's all.
1: A lot of people asking questions about the history of the liturgy. Uh, one nice book: uh, Alcuin Reed, Alcuin Reed, the organic development of the liturgy. If you really want to get into a scholarly text on the history of liturgical development. You could also look at um, Adrian Fortescue's The Mass. Uh, it's a little bit of an older book and maybe not quite as helpful, but the early chapters are very nicely done from about the 5th century on. Uh, but Alcuin Reed is a wonderful, wonderful text to have in your library. So Alcuin Reid, uh, last name is R-E-I-D, The Organic Development of the Liturgy. Thank you all very much for your attention and participation in these uh, four hours we've had together. Uh, it's been a kind of a tour de force. So thank you, Father Sebastian, again, uh, for being with us. God bless you all. and God bless you, Father Sebastian. Thank you very much. Let's, let's finish in the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.